tried to get us another church member this morning. We had a visitor that said, I've always wanted to hear someone preach through the book of Ezekiel. So I said, well, there's a strange minister that's trying to do it. Um, You're welcome to come back. Ezekiel 29, verse 1, God's word. The tenth year, the tenth month, and the twelfth of the month, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, set your face against Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Prophesy against him, against all Egypt. Speak and say, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am against you, Pharaoh, king of Egypt. The great monster that lies in the midst of his rivers, he said, My Nile is mine, I myself have made it. I'll put hooks in your jaws, I'll make the fish of your river cling to your scales. I'll bring you up out of the midst of your rivers, and all the fish of your rivers will cling to your scales. I will abandon you to the wilderness, you and the fish of your rivers. You will fall in the open field, you will not be brought together or gathered. I've given you for food to the beasts of the earth and the birds of the sky, then all the inhabitants of Egypt will know that I am the Lord, because they've only... They have been only a staff made of reed to the house of Israel. When they took hold of you with a hand, you broke and tore all their hands. When they leaned upon you, you broke and made all their loins quake. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will bring upon you a sword. I will cut off from you man and beast. The land of Egypt will become a desolation and a waste. Then you'll know that I am the Lord. Because you said, The Nile is mine, and I have made it. Therefore, behold, I'm against you, against your rivers. I'll make the land of Egypt an utter waste and desolation, from Migdal to Syene, even to the border of Ethiopia. A man's foot will not pass through it, and the foot of a beast will not pass through it. It will not be inhabited for forty years. So I'll make the land of Egypt a desolation in the midst of the desolated lands. All her cities in the midst of the cities that are laid waste will be desolate 40 years. And I will scatter the Egyptians among the nations and disperse them among the lands. For thus says the Lord God, at the end of 40 years, I will gather the Egyptians from the people among whom they're scattered. I'll turn the fortunes of Egypt, make them return to the land of Pathros, to the land of their origin. And there they will be a lowly kingdom. It will be the lowest of the kingdoms. It will never again lift itself up above the nations. I'll make them so small, they will not rule over the nations. It will never again be the confidence of the house of Israel, bringing to mind the iniquity of their having turned to Egypt. They will know that I am the Lord God. Now in the 27th year, the first month, the first of the month, the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made his army labor hard against Tyre. Every head was made bald, every shoulder was rubbed bare. But he and his army had no wages from Tyre for the labor had for that for the labor that he had performed against it. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will give the land of Egypt to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. He will carry off her wealth and capture her spoil and seize her plunder, and it will be wages for his army. I have given him the land of Egypt for his labor, which he has performed, because they acted for me, declares the Lord God. On that day I will make a horn sprout for the house of Israel. I will open your mouth in their midst, and they will know that I am the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that we would know that you are the Lord. We would know that you are the Lord who saves. You are the Lord God clearly that tells both Jew and Gentile alike, that you are the God who judges, but you are the God who saves us. You place your judgment upon his blessed back for our sins.
Um, Lord, we thank you for grace. We pray that we would never pervert it or misuse it as a license to live in sin, as those who pretend to love you, but in effect really love our false gods and our filth. Help us, Almighty God, help us to walk circumspectly, especially as we see your holy indignation against unholy sin. And help us to walk thankfully, Lord, as we see we deserve what the Egyptians received, judgment for their sins, but you gave us grace and mercy instead. Cause us to to love you with a deep love and to serve you zealously all the days of our life. We pray this in Christ's name. It's a judgment passage, obviously, um, although I will point out it's somewhat normative. You, you have it throughout the book. Um, at the very last word, you have a word of hope. So this is judgment. The, the themes uh, before us is God will judge uh, Egypt. And at the very last, God says, I'm going to restore my people. And those two things are connected, as I hope to show. But let me show us where... Ezekiel 29 is in the book. We're, we're, we're making our way through the book. The first 24 chapters, I've mentioned this before, but it's worth repeating. The first 24 chapters of the book um, are God's words of denunciation against the Jews, against Judah, his people. And he'll refer to them mainly uh, under the term Israel, but specifically it's Judah. Israel's already gone off into the Assyrian captivity in something like 722 or something. But this is the southern kingdom off to the Babylonian captivity. So he speaks against them. For 24 chapters, it's the Jews. And and we learn that principle that Peter talks about, and we talked about a lot, that judgment begins with the household of God first. I probably mentioned this ad nauseum. The people of God are being judged. Mainly the people of God are apostate. They're not believers. There are a smattering of true believers in the midst. Ezekiel would be one of them. And they suffer along with the other people who are the false professors. And you must be born again. To be in the church, to be formally attached, whether it's the old church or the new church, it's not changing. It doesn't change our hearts. And these people proved, the the Jews for 24 chapters proved the bulk of them were unregenerate by their habitual unrepentant sin. And uh, Hebrews 3, Hebrews 4 talks about that, that and so God says, I'm going to bring judgment on you. And I've often meant, mentioned that I think it's probably the scariest place to grow up in a Christian home with a real mom and dad that really do know Jesus. And they read the Bible and pray for you and with you. And they take you to a church that does those things. But to not, not come to Christ, to stay in your sin, it, it, it's judgment. So those first 24 chapters, God says to his visible church, you, you don't believe. You're living in your sin. And so they're judged. And so they're taken away to captivity. God preserves the faithful remnant, and then he'll bring them back. Chapter 25 to chapter 32, eight chapters, is God's denunciation of the Gentiles. So 24 Jews, eight for the Gentiles. And um, these people obviously are outside of what we would call the visible household of faith or the visible church. In in the Roman Catholic Church uses a phrase, and Protestants use this phrase. It's a, it, the phrase is found in our Confession of Faith. Outside of the visible church, there's ordinarily no salvation. And so here, for 24 chapters, it says it's not good, good enough to be in the church. You have to be in Jesus. 
those means of grace that the church has, the word and the sacraments, they have to be made effectual, such that a person's truly joined to God in Christ. Uh, but then, but related to that, and the denunciation of the Gentiles to be born outside of the church is doubly dangerous because you have no means of grace. And so there is no, you don't have the written law. You do have somewhat the, the law of God written on a man's heart, but that's greatly effaced from the fall. But you have no gospel. To be born outside of the church, which is what these people represent from 25 to 32, these Gentiles, they're dead in their sins and trespasses without, without any hope. That's in Ephesians 2, 12 through 21. Strangers to Israel, strangers to the promises, strangers to the covenants, strangers to the gospel. They're in the world without God, without any hope. That's these people. So yes, we've talked about being in the church but not being in Christ. Judgment. But to be a Gentile here in this context is to be in the world without any hope because you, you, you have no gospel. There's no answer for your sin. So when we're looking at God's denunciation of these various nations, we had a whole slew of them back in 25. I think there were maybe four, five, six of them. Um, And then we have God denounces Tyre for three chapters. What is it, 25, 26, 27, or 26, 27? Yeah, 26, 27, 28. It's Tyre, Tyre, the king of Tyre, and then, then Satan behind the king of Tyre, and then Sidon. And those are the Phoenician people, Gentilish people. And then for what we have here, um, beginning with chapter 29 all the way to 32, is God has a word for, for Egypt. So in the Bible, I have mentioned this before, there are two, two, two enslavements which, which are informative for the people of God. The people of God are enslaved by two nations. One, the larger enslavement, is to, um, is to Egypt. For 430 years, the people of God are slaves to Egypt. And then God liberates them. And that teaches us lessons about redemption. The lesser captivity is what's going on during this time is the Babylonian captivity. So the Babylonians enslave them for seven years and then the people of God are brought back to the land. Both teach lessons of uh, redemption, salvation by God's grace that there's no weapon formed against the, the church. There's no weapon formed against a believer. I wanted to pray through Psalm 118, but I didn't. That there's no power on earth or in hell that can take a, a Christian away from Jesus Christ. The church is going to be victorious. That's what that last line in our passage represents. We have all of those passages. Egypt will be put down. Egypt will be put down. And the Israel of God will be saved. We, we, need, we, we need to hear that. Because it's our Lord who fights for us and not we ourselves. So judgment against the Jews, judgment against the Gentiles. These are the folks represented um, in those various chapters. As I say, 29 to 32, God has a word uh, against uh, Egypt. And I want to see, look at verse 29, verse 1. There's a couple of time indicators here. And for our purposes tonight, I only want to look at the first one. I recognize in 17, I think there's another one. But I just want to look at the first one. God the Holy Spirit inspires Ezekiel to speak the word of the Lord against Egypt. And I want to say there are three, maybe four, if you count that last verse, sections, where it will say something to the equivalent, and the word of the Lord came to, and then within that particular subsection, it, it says something to the effect of, and they will know that I am the Lord. So the word of the Lord will come to Ezekiel to give to the people, to give to Egypt, and then to give by 
extension comfort to uh, Israel. We're told that the here initially the word of the Lord comes to Ezekiel in the tenth year of captivity. We've said this before. There's nothing arbitrary in the Bible. Uh, every jot and tittle is put there by inspiration by the Holy Spirit. And there are a couple of reasons why God puts the time marker. One, it shows the historicity, the truthfulness of, of the Bible. So um, th- this isn't Tolkien. This isn't Middle Earth. It's not written in language like that. This is written as historical narrative. This is, this, this is history. So when he says it happened in the 10th year of captivity, it's a real history. He gets the month. He gets the day. All of that. So we believe the Bible, which represents true truth, and so we can build our eternal destinies on it. The second thing that we learn by God giving a time indicator, and he says, the word of the Lord came to to Ezekiel in the 10th year. The 10th year of what? It's what I just mentioned. It's the 10th year of the lesser captivity. And God, through Jeremiah, tells the people of God, you will go away into Babylonian captivity. You remember how many years? 70 years. And he says, listen, you're not getting out of it. And therefore, I want you to pray for the Babylonians. I want you to pray for the peace of the land. Because when you pray for their peace, you're praying for their, your, your peace. Now, it, but as an aside, and I don't want to get down on a rabbit trail. We live in the Babylonian captivity. Is America the new Israel? No, it isn't. Do I love America? Yes. Do I pray for America? Yes. Be careful against praying for America, even though we provoke God to wrath every single day. Because we live here. <laughs> We're here. And so when God sends the old church off to captivity, he says, you better pray for Babylon because you live in Babylon. And so they're there for 70 years. And God says, at the end of 70 years, he says through Jeremiah, I'm bringing you back. And so the other thing that the people of God are are being taught here is you're 10 years in. How many years to go before you come home? 60. Beloved, we're the fast food generation. We are the fast food generation. We're the... the, the, um, we're the Burger King generation. We want it now and we want it our way. But it, God, it doesn't work that way. God's working on his timetable. But he says to his people, in 60, 10 years you've made it. 60 more years, you're coming home. Beloved, what would you be doing if you were in slavery for 60 years? You would be saying, 59, 58. And when you got close to dying, what would you say to your boys your girls and your sons, your grandsons and granddaughters. You got 40 more, you got 30 more, and you're going home. The Lord God is going to free you. Beloved, we live like that. This is how we have to live. One more year. What does Jesus say? <laughs> Something, look up your redemption, Joth night. The Apostle Paul says somewhere, we are one day closer to, to our redemption than when we first believed. You and I are one day closer to seeing Jesus than we were yesterday. We are going home. God says in 60 more years, you're coming home to the promised land. Someday that promise is going to be made true. We live like that. It's not morose. It's not morbid. It's, I've been singing the country bluegrass, bluegrass hymns. This world is not my home. Ricky Skaggs, this world is not my home. This world is not my home. In 60 more years, in 40 more years, in 30 more years. So he's, this is a denunciation of Egypt, but they're unbelievers. So by inference, he's comforting the people of God. He's saying, you're coming home and the enemies are going to be put down. So yes, this is meant to put the fear of God into the enemies. But more, I would argue, it's an indirect way to comfort the people of God. 
So they have a little, they've spent 10 years in Babylonian captivity and someday he'll bring them into the promised land. And the other thing is um, when he, he gives the specific um, year and month and, and day, it also shows us where in the ministry of um, Ezekiel this actual sermon takes place. I want to read to you um, Ezekiel 26 verse 1. Because when you read chronologically through a book, you think sometimes the events that are being recorded are, are, are happening as they're laid out in the book chronologically. But sometimes that's not always the case. Sometimes you have something put in chapter 26 that actually happens after chapter 27, which is the case here. So chapter, uh, tw- uh, excuse me, 29. In chapter 29, we have a prophecy that comes to the people of God in the 10th year. In chapter 26, it says, Now in the 11th year of the first month, God gives a prophecy against Tyre. God actually preaches this message against Egypt, chronologically, actually, before he preaches the message against Tyre. And the notion is that that the the, um, Egypt actually will fall before Tyre falls. In other words, that Tyre will be put down, even though the word comes against them later, um, uh, the people of God, um, excuse me, that uh, Egypt will fall um, before them. And so one of the things that we learn, notwithstanding when the word of judgment comes, whether it's earlier or later, when God says to one nation, you will fall, I will judge you. And he says to another nation, you will fall and I will judge you. He's the one who's sovereign over this. One person may receive a word of uh, warning, the wages of sin is death, and they may hear that, and God may permit them to live for 50 years in their sin. He may give another word to another man, the wages of sin is death, repent and believe, and God may give him five days to live and bring judgment. And so the thing that we're learning is whether Egypt gets a longer time or Tyre gets a longer time, when God says judgment is coming, judgment is coming. We have to try to reckon time as God reckons time. I just mentioned, which is what this represents, one sinner gets a little bit longer of time to live and to prosper in their sin before death, and the other sinner gets a lesser amount of time, but judgment comes quicker. One moment, one moment in eternal, receiving the eternal wrath of God No person from Tyre or Egypt will say, you got to live on earth five days or five years or 50 years longer than I did. One moment in eternal judgment will make the way that we reckon time go away. Some sinners God allows to live for 50 years. Other sinners, 17 years. But when God says, when you die apart from me and die in your sin, it will be judgment. So we're learning the sovereignty of God over the dispensing of judgment. In the business, when God says to one nation, I will judge you, and then he goes slow, one of the things that provokes unbelievers to think is that God is not God and he has forgotten. And if I can make a word of application, this is one of the dangers of toying with sin, any kind of sin. Um, We as homeschool moms or non-homeschool moms and dads, we teach our kids sin is a dangerous business. And when they grow up and maybe they play around with some sin 
and they don't get hurt right away and they think would be maybe mom and dad were not telling me the truth that's the worst thing that's the worst thing because then you play with it and you play with it and you play with it and when God tells them this is what's going to happen um, it's a dangerous thing to be emboldened in your sin thinking that God has forgotten in some way but he, he, he never does now let me speak a, a word about the identity of the um, the Egyptians I'm going to read from Genesis 10 where do all people come from I mean all people this is why to me racism is obnoxious it's just such a silly thing we're, we're all kin we all come from the same folks you have Adam and Eve and then after Adam and Eve you have um, you have an eight people on an eight per person ship a boat Noah and seven other folks on a boat we all come from Noah and the other seven folks on the boat everybody um, so all of the variations that human beings have and, and so on we're all kin um, Genesis 10 1 now these are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Obviously the sons of Noah. The sons of Noah. The sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, Tiras. The sons of Gomer were Askenaz, Riphath, Togamoth. The sons of Javan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, Dodanim, from these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, everyone according to his language, according to their family, to their nations. Now, listen to this next part. This is where we get the Egyptians. The sons of Ham were Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan. Remember, you've got the Adam and Eve, then you have Noah and seven folks on the ark, his um, um, wife and their um, um, children and their, their spouses. So from the sons of Ham, Ham was the fellow that made fun of um, uh, Noah drunk with his uh, clothes off. And then God cursed the, um, the son of uh, Ham, Canaan. But from Ham comes Cush and Mizraim. Cush, usually um, we believe that the people of the Sudan came from them and also Ethiopians. Uh, oh, who was married to a Cushite? Moses, his wife. And that's an interesting story. I like that story, actually. Um, but I shouldn't like it, but I do. Uh, so they, the Egyptians and the people from Sudan. And then Mizraim is the Egyptians. This is where Egypt comes from. And so he is a descendant. The Egyptians are descendants of Noah through the son Ham. And this is this Mizraim. I think the way that modern, um, and I, I'll butcher it, I can't. I'll have to spell it. This is for modern Egypt. M I S R or M A S R or M E S R. It's that kind of that 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 prefix to Mizraim. That's what the modern Egyptians call themselves. So these folks descend from the son of Ham. The only thing for our purposes that we need to learn is um, the Jews come through the line of Shem, Abraham, and so on. Not all Shemites become the Jews, but the Hebrews come through Shem. And that's the visible church. They have the means of grace. And then the other two fellows, um, what do we have? Uh, Ham and Japheth. And not all Shemites, but Ham and Japheth. These are the Gentiles. And I know I'm, I'm, I'm speaking generally, but you have the people of God, the visible household of faith, through which we have the, the gospel and the means of grace, and then the other people. So we're looking at Gen Gentiles. But that gives us a little bit where these folks come from. Um, 
Egypt, in the Bible, you know almost from cover to cover, it's the archetypical enemy of God and in the prototypical enemy of God's people. This is, this is the enemy of God. And it's a, it's a prototypical pagan is essentially what you're looking at. And um, I'm not using that as a pejorative. It's, it's just what they were. They worshiped false gods. They hated the God of heaven and earth. There's a contest between the God of heaven and earth, Jehovah, and the pagan Pharaoh previously. And you remember God comes to him through his man Moses and says, let my children go or else what? It says it in the Bible. You let my children go or else I will what? God says it. I will kill your son. You let my children go or I'll kill your son. And then when you read through the Exodus accounts, there's a cosmic battle going on, not just between the, the physical enemies of God, the Egyptians. Behind them is Satan, obviously. And God says, I'm bringing all these plagues to, to judge the gods of Egypt. He, God is showing his people that he is God. These gods are not gods. And God is showing his people and these people that no one can, no one can enslave his people. God will free his people. And so these people were enemies prior. Now Israel's doing something very stupid at this time. Maybe later in the body of the sermon, I'll bring this out. They start to trust in Egypt, which is classic. The church always does stupid things like this. And they're foolish and they, they hurt themselves. But these, these people are enemies of God and of God's people. And God here denounces, denounces them and promises judgment upon them. Um, I mentioned... Um, the greatest plague, which is what I was referencing when God said, I, if you don't let my children go, is obviously the last plague. And you remember the last plague was the death angel. And, and God threatened Pharaoh. He said, now you let my children go. And if you don't, there's going to be such a wailing in the land. And, and, and he makes a distinction between those who are his enemies and the enemies of his people and his people. And that's the Passover. And all of the homes with the blood of the Passover lamb pointing for, if you're covered with the blood of Jesus, then God passes over with his death and his justice and he visits us in his mercy. And so these people, are, again, are God's enemies. They don't, they, they don't stop. And you remember the story that Pharaoh constantly would feign repentance. This is that worldly sorrow worketh death. It wasn't real sorrow. I mean, if you've, met, if you've ever met people who say, Oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, I repent. Weep, 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 weep. There's, and there's no, there's no God-wordness to it. There's no Christ-wordness to it. This is just the, the, the pain. Of, this is just earthly pain. That was Pharaoh. He wasn't really at a change of heart. And so he sought to re-enslave the people of God. And you remember, he gets to the Red Sea. And what does God do? He does a species of this. He kills them all. He throws Pharaoh and his army into the, the Red Sea. And he does, which is what the last verse says. He saves his people. He judges and puts down his enemies. And in that, and through that, and by that, he'll save his people. And so Christ will put down his enemies, our enemies. And in that, and by that, he'll save us, his um, people. So God here does something. He flips it around. You remember with Tyre, I think he did this. I think I'm right. With Tyre, the denunciation was against the people of Tyre, against the people of Tyre, and then the king of Tyre. And God kind of flips that on his head with the Egyptians. He starts with Pharaoh first, and then he gets around to the people. So he goes king first, then people. It's interesting. 
I can't be dogmatic. I, I can't really figure out why, but I know that he does that. And, but he says, I'm against the Pharaoh. And Pharaoh means, the word comes from a word which means great house. So this is the word that they used for kings. And so essentially he'll say, uh, speak to the, the Pharaoh and then speak to all the people. And what he's telling these people in Israel, I'm against all of your enemies that are high and against all of your enemies that are low. And if we could just take the king of uh, Egypt, Pharaoh, and look at the language that God applies to him and try to understand why is God saying that he hates him and he will judge him? What are some of the sins that this Pharaoh manifests? And it's classic. It's classic sin, sin of a rich, uh, powerful ty- tyrant. If you look up a Pharaoh in an English dictionary, if you do it online, it's neat. There's benefit being online. Some real danger being online too. But one of the benefits of being online, you've got a, th- a thesaurus usually will pop up. One of the synonyms for Pharaoh in the English um, thesaurus is a tyrant. And that's exactly right. Pharaoh is a prototypical tyrant. And he's meant to be typical of the ultimate tyrant, which is the devil. He's an oppressor. He has almost complete universal power. No one checks this earthly Pharaoh. He has power of life and death. And he's unjust. And he does what all human beings would do if they had this kind of power. And he runs around saying things like, I'm, I, I made the Nile. I made the Nile. What is he saying? I'm God. I made the Nile. The Nile belongs to me. I'm God. And God looks at him and says, what? You're not God. You're like Leviathan. You're like a Nile crocodile. You might be mighty and powerful to men. People may bow and scrape to you. You might be mighty Pharaoh. You might be walking around saying, I have all this power, but I'm going to put a hook in your nose and then I'm going to pitch you out in the desert and let the birds and the beasts eat you. Because whereas one tyrant might be tyrannical about a human, against other human beings, you're not tyrannical against God. And beloved, we need this. This is the Psalm 118. I pray this all the time. How many times do you look at life? And we're, I mean, as Christians, we walk by faith, but we're not stupid. Reality is reality. If someone's pointing a gun at you, there's a good chance that you're leaving the planet. It's not just blink your eyes and say Jesus and everything gets perfectly great. Real enemies cause real pain, do they not? But they can only kill the body. They can't steal the soul. And we have to walk by faith and look at this God who says, these earthly pharaohs, I raise them up for a time. They wreak havoc. They abuse your, your body. They're under my control. At the, end of, at the end of the time that I've allotted for them, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to judge them. This is, this is not perverse. We're, this is, the, the children of God are not taking any pleasure in the death of the wicked, but we do take comfort, do we not, that someday all injustice will be made right. Beloved, people do awful things to human beings. Awful, awful, awful. And they do awful things to, to, to Christian human beings like this. And God says, I will judge you. I will right every wrong. And he says to the tyrant, and you're, and you're not God. You're just a Leviathan. You're an evil dragon. And behind this Leviathan, this evil dragon, is the great dragon. That's the language that he uses. There's a quote by, I want to say the guy's name is Lord Acton. And he writes a letter. This quote is something like, uh, power corrupts 
And absolute power corrupts absolutely. I want to say that's right. Lord Acton. I used to remember his first name. He writes that in a letter to a bishop called Creighton, actually. And then in that letter, he has a further argument, which is represented here by God's argument against Noah. He says almost universally um, um, great men are bad men. Almost universally great men are bad men. Why? Because they have the power and they have the might to live out what their fallen flesh wants. It's this. Unregenerate men can't deal with power. They can't deal with this kind of power. And they become deluded and think that they're caught. The more money, the more power that that a, a natural, unconverted man has, the more like Satan they will act like this man. And God says to them, and he says to the church, it may be Pharaoh, and I'm putting them down. And I want to jump ahead. I mentioned it earlier. You see it twice in the text. The people of God, we're told in the book of Jeremiah, and we're told in the book of Isaiah, the people of God have actually made an alliance with Egypt, the people of Judah. And they said, Egypt, come help us. They, they turn away from the Lord and they turn to Egypt and they say, for money, you be our savior. And God, this is in Jeremiah. And then God says in Isaiah to tell the people, don't do that. You see here in our passage, it says the bruised reed is going to pierce him in the hands. He's already told that to him. He's already told them that in Isaiah. So here's the foolish thing. The people of God are going through a difficult time. And rather than look to the Lord, they make an alliance with Egypt. And I want you to stop right there. Egypt. Egypt. Of all the Gentiles on the planet, the visible people of God are going to go, you know what? Here's a great idea. Look around. Who can help us? Remember those people that enslaved us for 430 years? We're going to kill all our kids, make bricks without straw. Those people, let my people go. We're going to go and they'll help us for ready cash. Beloved, I have a question to ask you. Remember, these people are like pagans on steroids. Enemies of God and enemies of God's people on steroids. What would make a professing believer in the Lord trot over to Egypt and make an alliance, come save us? Why would a professing believer go to an unbeliever in the zenith? What would make him do that? It's a pretty easy answer, but it's a pretty sad answer. The professing believer is an unbeliever. The professing believer is an unbeliever. When you see a professing Christian and, and they're the people they make alliances with, the people that they run to, you save us, save us now. And they're running to rank God-haters? That's because the professing believer, one, is either really an unbeliever or they're in gross sin. They're in gross sin. There's no middler position. And for many of these people, the reason they made an alliance with, with Egypt is because they're unbelievers. And God says they're going to prove to be a broken reed. And so by the time the Babylonians come up, the Egyptians won't come out. They don't help them. It doesn't work. They pay them all this money and, and their, their alliance doesn't come to pass. And in fact, God says to Babylon, not only will you destroy uh, Jerusalem, I'm going to let you 
I'm going to call Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, and I'm going to use one pagan tyrant to put down another pagan tyrant to exact the, the wages of sin from one pagan to another pagan. And that's what he does. He uses the Babylonians to chastise his people and then to bring judgment against Egypt. What does that say to us as, as believing people? God is God. God is God over America. God is God over the Ukraine. God is God over Russia. God is God over China. God is God. God is God. God is God over the church. He's over your, your son, your daughter, you. He is God. He runs everything. He says to one man, you go do this. He says to another, you go do that. Proverbs 21, he moves the hearts of kings like a river. And has he done any injustice? No, he has not. And God says, I'm going to bring all of these unbelievers who are trying to enslave my people and entice my people away from me. You're seeking the allegiance and the alliance with a pagan when we should be running to the Lord. And God says, I'm going to put them all down. This is why every four years I always tell, I know I'm conservative. I'm a conservative, whatever I am, political person. Every four years, all of us conservative Christians, we rub our eyes, boo-hoo, we're going to get him in four more years. This is God saying to you, you foolish Christians, you're putting your hope in this guy. And we say, we, we, we say we, we're not. I'm one of, we do. He's really going to get it. And family values, and he's working on his sixth family while he's believing in family values. Why do we believe this? We go to the heathen to help us. And this is exactly what the people of God did. And so we should put our trust in the Lord. Am I saying don't vote? Of course not. Vote your head off. Does it even matter? But vote, vote your head off. But don't put your trust. Because every four years, the church looks for a political savior. And we always end up with a handful of guacamole dip. And we should. And God says, don't turn to me. And then at the very end, he says, I'm going to save you. I'm going to open up this fountain. This is... It is a judgment passage against Israel, against um, Egypt. This is meant to encourage. We are going to win. We're not going to win because we're strong. We're not strong. We're going to win not because we're smart or wise. We are so foolish. <laughs> we're so foolish. We will be saved, as George read. What was it, Psalm 106 there? It, and it, it, woven throughout there was Egypt. We forget and we forget. Was it really God? That, was it Jesus? Did Jesus really win? Jesus really wins. And we really win in him. God will put down all of our enemies. In some great day, God is going to gather us all. We're sheep. We would never make heaven if he wasn't the shepherd and we weren't sheep. We're sheep. We'd run off and get lost somewhere. And he brings us all in, away from the enemies. That's what this is teaching us. May God be pleased with the preaching of his word.